We have followed the life of Abram since he lived in Ur of the Chaldeans near Babylon. When God called him to go to the promised land, he got there through a longish series of circumstances. God made a covenant with him. And last week, we examined what I called and will call again his most grievous mistake, which is when he and his wife decided to take one of their servants, their slaves essentially, and father a child with her and raise that child as his true son. So that was when Ishmael was born. And we pick up the story in chapter 17. Thirteen years have passed. So keeping that in mind, let's read the first two verses of Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Abram is 99 years old. This means baby Ishmael is now 13 years old. Abram, Sarai, Hagar, they have settled into their sin at this point. They're used to it. There's no going back. There's no what if. We're long past that now. This kid is 13. He is treated like Abram's son. He's introduced as Abram's son. And everybody refers to him as Abram's son. They probably have even called him the son of the promise and thanked the Lord that the son that he promised had finally been born to them for 13 years. But then we're going to see in this story, God is going to jump in. He's going to reassert himself into Abram's life. And he is going to remind Abram that is not the promised child. Abram is about to have a revival in this chapter. We talk a lot about revival. Revival means to bring life to something again. So re means to do again. Vival is like viva in Spanish. It means to live. So revive means to bring something back to life. Abram is going to have a revival of his relationship and covenant with God. But here's the trick about this story. Abram did not realize he even needed revival. He thought everything was fine. He wasn't praying, oh, Lord, send revival. We need it. God, I've made such a dreadful mistake. Please help me. Abram thought he and God were good. Sarai and Hagar and Ishmael thought everything was good between them and God. And here comes the Lord to assert himself into their life and say, hey, I have not given up on the original plan. Abram had settled for an inferior fulfillment of God's promise. This was not what God had promised him. He said, I'm going to give you children as the dust of the earth, as the stars of the heavens, a child of your own body. And what they ended up with was a child of his wife's maidservant, Ishmael, a concubine, essentially, is what Hagar was. That's not what God promised. But through his sin, that was a result of his impatience, we talked about that last time, he is now what we might call stuck It's like, well, this might not be the way God originally wanted it, but here we are, so nowhere to go but forward. Well, God does not see it that way. But a lot of us are in similar situations. We go through life, and we talked last week about the importance of not jumping ahead of God, you know, not moving before God says to move, that there are times where the Lord says, just wait until I tell you what to do, and you don't need to come up with something to do. 
when you feel like there's nothing going on. But what if we've done that? Like maybe it's academic to even discuss that. It's like, okay, yeah, we can talk about it. I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I was young, maybe I was emotional, maybe it was the wrong day, who knows? Maybe the planets were lined up weird. But I did that, so now what? Maybe Abram had that thought every now and then. No sense thinking about it. Ishmael's here now, this is where we're going. We're committing to the decision we made. There are many Christians, you might even say most Christians, who are living with less than what God has intended because of their own failures. It's hard enough to discuss missing out on life as we feel because of something that's happened to us. The coronavirus happened to us. No, we didn't make that happen. It happened. Earthquakes, hurricanes happen. People mistreat us. That happens. But there are some things that we cause the problem, and those are harder. Would you agree with me? I'm in a mess, but I don't have anybody to blame. It's just me. I did this. And because of that, I'm not experiencing the abundant life that Jesus promised in John chapter 10, verse 10. But what we're going to see in this passage is that God, after 13 years, will reassert himself, step back to Abram, and call him to the high standard that he had abandoned. He uses the name here in verse 1. He says, I am God Almighty. In Hebrew, this is El Shaddai. El means God. Shaddai, we're not quite sure exactly how to translate that. But in the Greek translation, in the Latin translation, it's, it's almighty, all-powerful. It's always used. This title for God is always used in impossible situations. Jerome, when he was translating it into Latin, would translate that Deus Omnipotens. Which you can hear the word omnipotent in there. God Almighty, El Shaddai. So he introduces himself as, I am the God that does impossible things. Why would he open up with that? Because he's about to tell Abram about an impossible thing he's going to do. God gives Abram a call. Walk before me. Be blameless. He's reaffirming the covenant promises here. Now, this is a rebuke, but it's also a call higher. And this is what astonishes me about this story, that God is not going to turn Abram over his knee and get angry at him for what he did. Although, as we discussed it last week, he deserved that. Abram deserved anything that was coming his way after the mess he and his wife had gotten into. And we even discussed how Hagar herself was not blameless in that situation. But this is how God likes to do things. God will give a rebuke and get a correct, and we are going to get to that. But more than that, he's just going to call him higher. He says, your problem is less that you sinned, and your problem is more that you don't have enough faith, Abram. Isn't that God's way? Now, we look at that, and we maybe don't like that. We get grouchy. We're like, well, there needs to be a rebuke. We need to know what's wrong. We need to know what's been done. Haven't you found with you that more often than not, God doesn't bring you punishment for what you've done. He just says, hey, let's do better and let's move forward. That happened for me. Psalm 103, the Lord does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not treat us the way we deserve. Because it is God's responsibility to work out his own promises. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul would write, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God started this thing. God's going to finish this thing. We talked about it last week. Abram tried to complete in the flesh what was begun in the spirit, and he ended up in a really bad spot. But God says, isn't going to say, well, that's that. Forget it. God's going to say, okay, 
Don't worry, it's up to me to fix this. God is the one who promised to bring about the covenant, not Abram. Remember when he established that covenant and they separated the animals on two sides? Who went between them? It was the Lord, not Abram. It was, he was taking the responsibility upon himself. This isn't us saying, God, you do it and I'm going to ignore you. This is God of his own sovereignty and his own initiative saying, I'll take care of it. He is the one who leaves the 99 sheep to go after the one. Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, the gifts and the calling of the Lord are without repentance. They're irrevocable. God's like, when I started it, I'm going to finish it. The Lord had not given up on Abram. And things are much more complicated now. We're not going to argue about that. But God himself is the one that initiates the conversation again. He wants to work out the fullness of his will. He's not going to let Abram settle for less than what God had promised. Have you found that when you try to settle in to something that is less than what God would promise you, you can't get comfortable? You ever go camping and you pick the wrong spot to put your tent and you just can't get comfortable? There's like an acorn sticking up into your back through the tent or there's rocks or there's an anthill that you put your sleeping bag on. That's what it's like when you try to settle for less than what God intended. God's not going to let you be comfortable there. God's going to say, let me move you on farther. And I say to you tonight, God is great in mercy. And you may have thought, well, it's too late for me to experience the fullness of God's plan for me. God has not given up on you. And some of y'all are here thinking everything is great. And you're saying, oh, I hope somebody here really needs to hear that. It might be you. Because Abram didn't realize he needed a revival. But he's going to get one. Because God knew he needed it. God is the one who initiates revival. We'll talk about that more another time, but we shouldn't think that we can make revivals happen like we're doing a rain dance around the, the bonfire. If we pray enough times and have church enough times and say the right words and make sure we don't have any doubt in our brain, we can make revival happen. No, you cannot. The Lord does that of his own sovereignty. But the good news is God deals individually with his people. And even if he's not going to do something on a national level, God is ready to restore you tonight. So a little, little outline for you as we go through this. There's going to be four, I think, distinct sections here. And in the first one, God is going to reaffirm his promise to Abram. Then he's going to restore Abram's faithfulness. That's that corrective part we're discussing. He's going to resurrect what Abram thought was dead, and he's going to redeem the mistake. He's going to redeem what was broken. That's true revival. And you'll notice, we'll come back to this at the end, one quarter of that has to do with Abram and his responsibility. The rest is the Lord doing what the Lord does. So let's see this. Starting at verse 3, God has announced himself. He's about to reestablish the covenant. And in verse 3, Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Avram, but your name shall be Avraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an, underline it, everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Verse 8 is another one to circle. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. I've said before, we've seen 
God has had to bring Abram along in his faith at different stages. He promised, I'm going to bless you, Abram. God finally blessed Abram. We don't really hear much about that anymore. Finally, God promised Abram, no, this land is going to be yours. And Abram believed God. And the rest of this is about Abram believing God that he is, in fact, going to have those descendants like the dust of the ground or the stars of the sky. We're trying to build that faith in Abram. And this is going to be to the end of his story, actually. This is the next stage in what I've been calling the progress of the promise. Because there's not one big moment like with Noah. Noah's covenant is right there. You can point to the passage. Abraham's covenant was really stretched out over his life, even though it all amounts to the same thing. Back in Genesis chapter 12, we saw the initial call where God told Abram, leave your land, leave your family, and come here. Genesis 13, we saw he had to separate from Lot, so he had to finally be fully obedient to that initial call. Genesis 15, this is when he was desperate and afraid that he wasn't going to have any children. And he says, no, I'm going to give you children as the stars of the heavens. And it says Abram's faith was counted as righteousness. The second half of that chapter is when God formalizes what we call the Abrahamic covenant, where they go through the ritual. Remember, they get it on paper, so to speak. And then today we're going to see he's going to give him the sign of the covenant, the sign of circumcision, just as the rainbow was the sign of Noah's covenant. Abram has had an amazing life of meeting with God, hasn't he? This is one of those places where the New Testament will say that God spoke to Abram like a man speaks to his friend. But now God comes down. It says in verse 22 that God was going to go up. So he's going down from heaven, maybe in the form of a man. Last time it was in the form of a, a torch and a smoking oven. You remember that? Whatever it was, Abram fell on his face as God spoke to him. And I think it's an interesting way to break down this passage because the Lord is going to say three times, as for you, or as for her, or as for him. And I think that's a good way to break this down. He's not going to say it in reference to himself, but we're going to call it the same thing because it helps us understand it. He begins by saying, as for me, he says, this is what I'm going to do, Abram. He starts with that. He reaffirms that the covenant he made in Genesis 15 is still in effect. It's been 13 years, longer than that since chapter 15. And he says, my covenant is with you. You could add, my covenant is still with you. Nothing's changed. He reaffirms the promise. And maybe we should wonder about that. <laughs> Wait a minute. You're, you're going to keep your covenant with this guy who abused this woman and then allowed his wife to continue to abuse this woman and is now raising this illegitimate child and calling him the son of the promise, you're going to stick with this guy? Yeah, he is. Let that build your faith. Because if you're like, well, I've never done anything like that. Well, good. I'm glad you haven't. Just remember, the Lord is, is more patient and more merciful than you. But instead of giving him a harsh rebuke, as the Lord will do from time to time, he comes to Abram, and instead of saying, what have you done? Are you out of your mind? He says, I'm still your God, and we still have a covenant together, and I'm not going to break it, and I'm going to continue to bless you. And he chooses to give Abram a new name. He intensifies the promises. Whereas before he said, you're going to have lots of children. Now he says, you're not just going to have lots of kids. They're going to be kings. They're going to be nations. They're going to be rulers of the world. And he gives him this new name, Abraham. Now, Abram's name up to this point has been Avram. Av is like Abba. We read about that, Abba Father. Av means father. 
Ram is like ram. It means great. It means exalted. So you put them together. Avram means exalted father or great father. Well, he becomes Abraham. Av, which is also means father, and Racham. Now the word Hamon or Ham, depending on the tense, means many or multitude. So this is not like exactly the word father of many. It's like God took his name, Avram, and added a syllable. So Avraham means father of many or father of a multitude. Whenever God gives someone a new name, it's a big deal. We see this a lot in scripture, and I can't wait to get to Genesis 32. That, that's one of my favorite passages when Jacob is renamed Israel after wrestling with God. Saul of Tarsus, after he meets the Lord, will change his name to Paul. Saul is like the king of Israel, right? And he changes it to Paul, which means little or small. Even later on in history, many of the church fathers would change their names from representing the pagan gods to representing people from the word or from scripture or, or names that glorified the Lord himself. I don't know if you knew this, but Martin Luther King Jr., his name when he was born was Michael King Jr. But his father, when he went to Germany and saw all the history of what Martin Luther had done, changed his name. Because he's like, that's the kind of man I want to be, and that's the kind of man I want my son to be. So Martin Luther King, he changed his name out of recommitment to the Lord. We meet people in Nepal who they have names like Samson and David and Joshua. And you know those are not Nepali names. So where do they come from? Well, their names used to be something else, idolizing one Hindu god or other, and then they become saved. Like, I don't want that name anymore. That's not who I am anymore. So they change it. There's a man over there who's a pastor named Samson who used to be a witch doctor, but now he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is so cool because this isn't somebody saying, I'm going to recommit myself to the Lord. This is God saying, I am going to work on you like I've been promising. Aren't you glad that sometimes God starts to work on you when you're not looking for it? God just says, I'm, I'm going to change this because this needs to be changed. He promises to make him fruitful. This is not talking about blessings, about material blessing, although that is part of it. This is the word para. It means fertile. Remember back in Genesis 1 when God created all the animals and he created Adam and Eve and he said, be fruitful and multiply. This man who is 90 years old or 99 years old, only has one child, God says, I'm going to make you fruitful. You're going to have a line of people that is going to explode. And these descendants will be nations and kings, not just regular people. And while he does not alter the terms of the covenant, he emphasizes its everlasting nature. He says an everlasting covenant. The Hebrew word is olam. It means eternal or forever, which is important for us to remember because we can't just say, well, God made the covenant with Abraham, and after Abraham died, you know, all bets are off. No, it's an eternal, everlasting covenant. In Psalm 105, it celebrates this. We read this passage last week, I believe, or two weeks ago. It says, the Lord remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. This covenant lasts forever. Now we have to remember that because it becomes significant when you start doing long-term whole Bible analysis and you get to the New Testament and you start talking about what is the church Really, you have to remember this. 
It's important for eschatology when you think about the future and does Israel have a right to their land. Normally, the way this is argued is folks say, well, this covenant was never fulfilled, so God still has to fulfill it. So we still need to expect Israel to have their land. Other folks will say, God did fulfill it, and they blew it, therefore it's over. I think both of them are coming at it the wrong way. It's not a matter of whether it was or was not fulfilled. What matters is, how long is this thing supposed to last? So it doesn't really, it's not really relevant if it was fulfilled or not. And I think there's good evidence on both sides. He says in verse 8, read it again with me. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. That's pretty straightforward. So God affirms he is still Abraham's God. He's going to give Abraham children. And that the land of promise is still his in God's eyes. Because God put the responsibility for the fulfillment of the promise upon himself. He refused to allow his promise to be thwarted by Abraham's impulsive decisions. Aren't you glad that God is able to cover some of the stuff you do and to minimize your mistakes, even grievous mistakes? You look back and like, man, God just really blunted the impact of that. The same goes for you and me. So many Christians view themselves as damaged goods. Yeah, I'm still going to heaven, but that's about all I'm getting. I've outrun the grace of God. If I mess up one more time, God can't forgive me anymore. That is not what Scripture tells us. God is the one who delights in showing mercy to us. In Jude 24 and 25, he puts it this way. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless on the final day. This is the question. Not how bad have you sinned, but is God able to present you and keep you for the rest of your life? Is God able? Because that's all that really matters. When we mess up, and I mean even seriously mess up, like Hagar and Ishmael level mess up, you've got to take your eyes off of your sin and look to the Savior. Stop looking at yourself and start looking at God. There's another passage in the New Testament that says, it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. We have a bad habit of counting out the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That God is constantly working on you. And you put all this pressure upon yourself to make it happen. Now, God is going to tell Abraham in a minute, you've got to keep my covenant. But you cannot discount the fact that God himself is working on you. And that God is going to bring you to his own place, faultless and blameless. Isn't it amazing? Abraham had faith so God could use him, despite all of his shortcomings. There are a lot of people that have all kinds of talent, all kinds of potential and promise, but they have no faith and God can't do a lot with them. The Lord is willing to overlook so much for those who believe. Recognize that God is in the business of fixing what is broken. And you've got to believe not only could God fix me, not only could God show mercy, but that God wants to show mercy. The, the gap there, it, it's so small. But there are so many folks that are stuck right there at that gap. I believe that God could do all these things, but where we get stuck is, but I don't think God wants to do it now for me. Oh, that's heartbreaking, you guys. Well, I just feel like God has told me 
that he's going to keep me at arm's length. No, he did not. That is not your Lord Jesus Christ. Did he do that to anybody that he ever came to? The only people he did that to were religious hypocrites who already thought they had it all going on. So it doesn't apply to you. Jesus is the one that bridged the gap. He, God sent his only son to die for you. What makes you so special that God's mercy can't reach you? You've got to believe that. Not only can God save you, but he wants to save you. Not only can God revive you, he wants to revive you. God shows up and reaffirms his promise. He says, Abraham, I'm not going to let you settle for less. Same thing for you. He won't let you settle for less. So when God comes in with an unexpected revival, the first thing he'll do is reveal himself. As long as I'm making notes on revival, by the way, we make a mistake by talking about revival in terms of anybody other than the Lord himself. Revival is a renewal of the vision of God in the Lord's church. If we look at revival as a tool to accomplish a goal, we're missing the point. It always starts with God's people being knocked on their face in his presence, fully aware of who he is. We start to look at the byproducts of revival and say we want that rather than what's at the heart of it, which is a fresh vision of God and his mercy. Verse 9, let's move on. So God reaffirms the promise to Abraham. That's the as for me section. He never said that, but from now on, he's going to make that phrase at each new section. So look at it, verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you, there it is. We had the as for me, here's as for you. You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So we started up with what we call the as for me section. Now we move on to the as for you section. God reaffirmed the promise. Now he's going to restore Abraham's faith, his belief, but also his faithfulness. Faithfulness is the actions that follow after belief. Now, we already said in verse 1 and 2, to walk before me and be blameless. He's going to expand on that a little bit, and he's going to give him a specific way he wants him to do that. You're going to keep my covenant on your end through righteousness. And as a reminder of the promise and a reminder of his own responsibility to keep the covenant, he gives him the sign of covenant, the rite of circumcision. This is, of course... A, re a reference to the removal of the male foreskin. This is a drastic thing. It is a permanent thing. It is a painful thing. And God commands him to do that, not just for you, but for all the men in your household, slave and free. You're going to do this. Now, we need to know something because you can read this and get the impression that this has never been done before. It actually was not the case. This was rather common at the time. If you read Jeremiah chapter 9, He's talking about all these other nations that circumcised their children, but were not loyal to him. Egypt, Judah, Edom, 
Ammon, Moab, a couple others are named there. So the Lord is, by implication, reminding us there were others that kept this ritual, or this rite, you could say. At this time, in most cases, it was a marital rite. It was something as a, as a rite of passage before you were married, you would go through circumcision. Now, God is doing something different here, and he's doing it for little children. And he says those who are not circumcised will be, look at what he says in verse 14, will be cut off. And there's a lot of plays on words there where he's saying, if you refuse to be cut, I'm going to cut you off. This can be a reference to a couple things. That phrase cut off is used for what we might call excommunication or exile, right? You're no longer part of the family. There also are places where being cut off refers to actually being killed. So it's not sure which one he's talking about here, but it's not good. Either way, you don't want it, right? Now this would become, and to an extent, remains the ultimate sign of the covenant for the Jews. Now they have the Sabbath day, which the Lord will call the sign of the Mosaic covenant. But here we have circumcision, which is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. You can read, if you like, in Leviticus chapter 12. He's got a big, long list of rules and laws that went along with how this was to be done. And if you read in other places in the Old Testament, to call someone uncircumcised was a very serious insult. It was trash talk. It was almost a slur. Remember when David sees Goliath for the first time? He says, who is this uncircumcised man to come around here talking about God's people? And he says it again to Saul later. He says, I'll handle that uncircumcised man. God had me handle lions and bears and tigers. I can handle some uncircumcised guy. It was a slur. It was an insult because it became a mark of pride for the people. And well, it should have been because this was a sign that they belonged to the Lord and that God had a special covenant with them. But you know as well as I do, we went through the book of Acts just very recently here. The act of circumcision began to replace what circumcision was supposed to signify and represent. Whereas it became no longer about a reminder of the need for faithfulness and obedience, the removal of the flesh, so to speak. But by itself, that was the goal, just to have this physical act done rather than to let it be a reminder and a testimony to what was going on in the heart. Now, God anticipated this. In Deuteronomy 10.16, he said to the people, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. A couple times he says phrases like that, which is, don't think that you can just do something physical and quick and easy and then be part of the team. Very similar to how John the Baptist would say, don't, don't think because you're a child of Abraham, you somehow are automatically brought into the family. God could turn that rock into a child of Abraham. Jeremiah would come on later and say, the Egyptians are circumcised, the Ammonites, the Moabites. So what makes you think that that itself makes you so special? And Paul would pick up this idea in the New Testament because circumcision became a point of contention. Because remember, we're now bringing Gentiles into God's church. And these Gentiles are not circumcised. They're Greeks. They're Romans. They don't have that tradition. And they were going around to all these churches saying, you've got to be circumcised or you're not part of God's covenant. That's one reason among many why we don't believe in one overarching covenant, but that there's the dispensations as we talked about. Because Paul's like, no, it's not about that. He argued that the physical act is subordinate to the posture of the heart. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans 4. This is an important parallel passage to the story we're looking at today. We're going to read Romans 4, verses 7 through 12. Paul talks about this at length because it was such a, a point of conflict in the early church. We've moved past it because Paul makes it so clear, but it's good for us to know why. 
he begins, I'm jumping in the middle of chapter 4 here where he's quoting from the Psalms. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So we're talking about the blessing of forgiveness of sins. Verse 9. Is this blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Chapter 15, remember? How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? What's the answer? Before. He goes on, he says, It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received, listen, the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness could be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul makes a big deal out of the timing of things when it comes to Abraham's life. Because what they were saying was, you can't have the blessing of forgiveness that David wrote about, and I believe it's Psalm 32. You can't have that if you're not circumcised. But Paul jumps in and says, absolutely not. Because Abraham was counted righteous because of his faith. And he says that happened in chapter 15, years before circumcision came in. So either God was lying in chapter 15, and Abraham was not righteous yet, or circumcision doesn't have anything to do with being righteous in your heart. It doesn't make it insignificant, but it's not a salvation matter. In 1 Corinthians 7, 19, Paul would put it a little more concisely. Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Another verse in Colossians, he says the same thing, and he says faith and love are what matter. Now, we get that. That makes sense to us. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, just cutting yourself doesn't affect your soul. We know that to be true. But this was something they had to learn. Neither circumcision counts, nor uncircumcision. This is why Paul was willing, remember, to circumcise Timothy, because he knew that if Timothy, the son of a Jew and a Greek father, were to be brought to these Jewish synagogues and they found out he wasn't circumcised, it would be a hindrance. Paul's like, I'd rather just not deal with it. We're going to circumcise Timothy. But he refused to circumcise Titus, who was from Tarsus and Cilicia like he was, because they were trying to force it upon Titus as a means of salvation. And so Paul said, not on your life, pal. He's saved by the grace of God. I'm not going to let you add anything to him. Now, today, most young boys, almost all of them, at least in our culture, are circumcised. Because this is another one of those examples where God knew what he was doing way before anybody else did. And we know that there are a lot of medical benefits and things that go along with it. Not so important to this story here, but it's just another example of, yeah, God knew what he was doing. He knew what he was talking about. The closest parallel for us as Christians with circumcision is baptism. It's a physical act. You're getting dunked under the water. Maybe you were sprinkled. It's not so important for the discussion today. But it's, a, it's an initiatory rite, right? You become a Christian and you're baptized. It's, it's like, hey, welcome to the family. You're died to your sins, raised to walk in newness of life, right? I can tell you a funny story. When I was in pastoral leadership class back in seminary, there was one class where we were going to practice baptizing people. It was cool. We got to go to the Thomas Road Baptist Church, their huge baptismal in front of all this. No one was there, but it was a huge stadium, and we had to practice baptizing people. I actually had baptized folks before, so I thought, 
oh, no sweat, I got this. I was the only one that had to go back and do it again because apparently I didn't do it well enough the first time. But uh, I don't know what I did wrong exactly, but it was like the first guy goes in the water, first guy baptizes him, and then the person that did it, you wait. and you. It was, was kind of fun, but I'm like, of course, I'm the one person that has to get called back to do it again. I flunked the first time apparently, but whatever. I did end up passing that class. But like Peter says in another place, if you are baptized, but nothing changes in your heart, what fat lot of good did your baptism do you? Now there are folks that want to say, no, no, no. Baptism itself regenerates you. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that it is an act of obedience to the Lord, and you should be baptized. If you haven't, you're in disobedience because God told you to do it. But to think, well, I've been baptized, therefore nothing can touch me. It's the same thing. It's actually less invasive to your body than circumcision was, but we, we treat it the same way. Well, I'm going to take care of this, and then I won't have to worry about anything else. This is another reason why we hold to what's called believer's baptism, where we don't baptize infants as soon as they're born. We wait until the new birth, right, when they're born again, as of John 3, that it's the, it's the welcome into the kingdom. But it's the same thing. Circumcision was meant to be a reminder. Reminder, first of all, that God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your seed. And a reminder to be holy and to remove the flesh of the heart. That's what circumcision was. It was a removal of the flesh. And in the rest of the Bible, it'll pick that up about being circumcised in your heart, not letting your flesh, your body, your drives, your hungers drive the bus. So here's the question. Where does the Lord need to cut some stuff out of your life? God wants to restore your life. He wants to bless you because he loves you. But if you refuse to leave behind the works of the flesh, then you're going to end up right back in the same spot you were before. Ishmael was the work of the flesh. Not a, not a lick of what happened with Hagar and Ishmael was done in faith. It was doubt. It was impatience. It was selfishness. It was impulsive. It was ambitious. It was, we're going to handle this because God won't. You've got to stop doing that if you want to receive God's fullness. And this is not about you earning God's favor. We've already talked about this. Abraham hadn't earned anything. It was God's grace that was shown to him. But this is about you stopping your self-destruction to give God room to move you forward. If all your interactions with God are him cleaning up what you've already done, you never move forward. And what's the point of that? Let me ask you a question. And think hard about this. If you... Let's say, if this church were to go through revival today, if the Holy Spirit were to drop on this church and we would be flat on our faces, the Lord working stuff out in our heart, and we get to the point where we're having daily meetings multiple times a day, thousands of people crowding in here, the Holy Spirit manifesting himself, what would God change in your life if that were to happen? You probably know the answer already. What would stop? What would end? Well, I'd say, well, wouldn't be dealing with that anymore. God would finally get rid of this thing for me. That's what's got to be cut out of your heart. That's what's got to get taken care of. Now, don't say, well, I, I've been doing it too long. I'm addicted to it. There's no, no way to get away. Romans chapter 8, verse 12 and 13 says, Brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. You don't owe your flesh anything to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That tells us that the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you and He has given you the power to overcome the fleshly sins of your life. I think we have a tendency to 
I don't know what the right word is, to magnify our sin and our temptations in our lives, where it becomes not just something I'm trying to struggle to overcome, but like it's chiseled into the rock of your heart. We label ourselves. We identify, this is who I am. I don't know if that's a psychology thing or what. We're like, this is who I am, and this is the way that I've always been. That's not how it works with the Lord. You don't owe your flesh anything. There's all kinds of titles and diagnoses and labels that can be put on us. None of that matters. You don't owe that anything. And if you put those things to death by the Spirit, you will live. Remember, you're part of a better covenant than Abraham was. You have a better sacrifice. You have a better baptism. So you've got to be ready to make that change. So God started by restoring Abraham's hope, right? He reaffirmed the promise, as for me. Then he says, as for you, you've got to get this right, Abraham. We're not going back to this Hagar-Ishmael thing again. We're not doing that. He restored his faithfulness. So he's, he's got Abraham and him right. Now we're going to start looking at everybody else. This is where it gets really difficult. Verse 15, God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Again, you saw that, the everlasting covenant. So God started, as for me, then he says, as for you. Now he says, as for Sarai, as for your wife, the woman who had been basically set aside in this whole story. And let's not forget, that was her idea. So she's not so much a victim here, except of her own, her own flesh as well. He is going to resurrect what Abraham thought was dead. Not literally, but as good as dead. Abraham's promise, it's always been tied to his wife. Because when we're talking about children, of course, your wife is part of this Abraham. She's going to bear those children that will be as the stars of heaven. Now, back in 15 verse 4, when he said, hey, how about Eliezer of Damascus, my servant? No, he said, a child of your own body shall be your son. Now, they had chosen to interpret that through the lens of their own flesh. I mean, Ishmael is technically of your own body. Didn't say anything about me. But the Lord's like, no, no, no. She's part of this too. And he gives her a new name as well. Her name was Sarai. It was changed to Sarah. Now, both of those mean princess. There's really not a lot of difference here. But Sarah, it's been speculated as part of a different dialect. Maybe it was closer to the language that they were speaking. It could have a different emphasis by changing the ending. We really don't know. They both mean the same thing, which is princess. And in this culture, a princess was less like Cinderella or something from Disney. But like a prince was a ruler, a princess also had some authority and some power. So this isn't just someone locked up in the tower. This, this is a, a prestigious position for her to have. And he is going to exalt her despite her own sin. I hope I emphasize that enough because there's a lot of weird feminist theology that gets written about what a victim Sarah was. Well, I mean, not really. This was her. She was on board with this. It was her idea. 
But the Lord says, I'm going to make her a mother of many nations. Kings will come from her. Nations. She would be the mother of all the land of Israel, all the land of Judah, all the kings and the tribes. She also would be the mother of the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. And of course, Christ Jesus himself, the king of kings, would be a descendant of Sarah. But Abraham laughed. His wife is 90. And I saw one commentator, I don't know if the text insists upon this, but he said it's possible that we could have to translate verse 17 as Abraham fell over laughing. Wasn't that he fell on his face and laughed like he fell over? You've got to be kidding me. I don't think that's necessarily what it says, but it does communicate the idea. She's 90. How's she going to have a child? Y'all have seen 90-year-old women before. This is ridiculous. You're laughing now, you see, right? There you go. And this is also why the Lord says you're going to name your kid Isaac, because Isaac means laughter, right? And we're going to see every time we talk about Isaac, somebody's laughing. She's how old? She's going to have a baby? And in verse 18, Abraham goes, Lord, how about Ishmael? We've already got Ishmael. And you could read this in verse 18. It says in the ESV, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. You could translate that as, Lord, Ishmael already lives before you. It's like, Lord, we don't need to do this. We've already got Ishmael. He's trying to say, we don't, we don't need to do this ridiculous plan, Lord. But you also got to read that. I mean, Abraham loved his son. He's 13 years old. He loves this kid. He's been telling him, you're the miracle child. You're the baby. You're the promised one. Nope. The Lord responds, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son by Sarah. They have to specify this time because they used a weird exegetical loophole to say, oh, as long as it's from me, it doesn't have to be from her. And even tells him when it's going to happen. So that way there's no mistakes. But your name will be, it says, Isaac. This in Hebrew is Yitzchak. Doesn't sound a whole lot like Isaac, does it? Yitzchak. But it means laughter. And I also love that you guys laughed just now because that's exactly what we need to hear from that. She's 90 years old, going to have a baby, and everybody kind of chuckles. Yeah, exactly. It was like, everybody's going to laugh, but we're going to glorify the Lord through it. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, the Lord says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. El Shaddai, the God of the impossible, God Almighty. God is able to resurrect things that we thought were dead. Romans 4.17 says he gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. Love the older translation. He calls things that are not as though they were. Maybe you've missed out on God's promises. Maybe you know what the Bible says, but it does not describe your life. You recognize that God can restore you. You know what you need to do, but you have no faith that God can bring back what is dead in your life. You think to yourself, I wish I had heard this message 10 years ago. Then everything would have been better. Then God could have had a chance. I wish I had heard it six months ago. I wish I had heard it when I was a child. But you need to know that God is not hindered by those things. Remember when Lazarus died and Jesus came back to Mary and Martha's house and Martha came out. She knew that Jesus Christ needed to be worshipped. She knew that he was the Messiah. She knew that resurrection was coming. So she knew that, as for me, I'm going to raise us all up in the last day. 
She knew that as for you, that she needed to have faith in Christ, but she had a hard time with the as for the things that are dead. She said, I, I believe who you are. I know what you can do. But she could not believe that God was going to raise up Lazarus that day, now, immediately. And I think this is where a lot of us get stuck. We say, yeah, someday God's going to make everything right. And God comes in and says, no, I want to make it right now. I want to fix this now. I want to take this away from you now. I want to restore this to you now. Well, Lord, I know he'll be raised on the last day. And Jesus is like, don't say that. I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. Roll away the stone so I can call him out of there. That's what the Lord can do. You have to believe that. I've just about had it with Christianity that is so skeptical of a miracle-working God. And we wrap it in this almost, I won't say it's blasphemous, but it's almost blasphemous theology that says God doesn't do this kind of stuff anymore. Has there ever been a generation that has not said that, that thinks we're unique? You've got a book in your lap that is full of God intervening in people's lives, doing things that are impossible, and you say, well, he couldn't do it now. Why not? Well, he doesn't do it very much. That's why it's called a miracle. We have a miracle-working God. We've got to be people who believe that it is always possible for God to intervene and do something miraculous. And don't say to yourself, well, I've lived a long time and I've heard these messages a lot and I've never seen it. I, I, I lovingly and respectfully don't care about your experience or mine. What does the Word say? If our lives don't match up with the Word, who's wrong? It's not the Word well, God must not be doing that anymore. No, sir. That is not what the Bible says. There's nothing so dead that God can't revive it. Nothing. If you feel like your joy is dead, oh, God could never, never give me the joy and the peace that he's promised. Or your future is dead. Or your calling in life is dead. Or your freedom from sin is dead. You've got to repent of your unbelief and come to the Lord Jesus and say, Jesus, I need a resurrection. Abraham loved his wife, but he had counted her out as a mother. It's done. That's dead. That possibility is no longer around. And guess what? So had she. She came to Abraham and said, it's not going to work for me. You've got to try with Hagar now. But God had not spoken those words. And the Lord's like, it's me, Abraham. Is there anything too hard for me? Is there anything so dead that I can't revive it? God was doing miracles through Elisha even after Elisha was dead. His grave was open and some man fell down dead into Elisha's grave and he bounced back up alive again because he touched the bones of Elisha. There's nothing our God cannot do. Lord, we don't need it. We've already got Ishmael. He says, that's the work of your flesh. I don't want to do the work of your flesh. I want to do something of the spirit that will be so much better with no sin mixed into it. Verse 20. Our last as for. So we've seen... As for me, the Lord said, I'm going to reaffirm the promise. As for you, Abraham, he's going to restore Abraham's faithfulness. As for Sarai, he's going to resurrect her, so to speak, in Abraham's mind. And number four, let's read verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. As for Ishmael, now he's going to redeem the mistake. To redeem something means to buy it back. 
means to take something that was lost and bring it back. God says, I've heard you. Because Abraham's interceding. He's like, God, you can't just cast away my little boy. He says, I heard you. I'm not abandoning him. God promises, I'm going to bless him. He's already told this to Hagar. Maybe Abraham hadn't heard that yet. He actually makes him a mirror of Israel here. He's going to have 12 children. They're going to become great tribes. They're going to have a promised land. They're going to be blessed. But they're not going to receive the covenant. And that's the big difference. And another time, I had to really restrain myself because we are going to talk about this later. But I think there's a very interesting parallel to run through the, the descendants of Ishmael as almost the anti-Israel. Because it's, it's, a, it's like a negative image. It's the opposite side. As Islam is like the opposite, polar opposite of Judaism. And th there may even be some eschatological significance to that. But another time. <laughs> Just going to draw attention to you to the relevant bits so that we can call them back later. The only thing Ishmael is going to miss out on is the covenant. That's a big thing to miss out on, isn't it? And God establishes again the timeline of Isaac's birth. So Abraham is being restored to the Lord. He's having this unexpected revival, but guess what? Now he's got baggage. This is similar to what happened with Lot. They're going to separate, and so half the promised land is going to go to Lot's descendants instead of to Abraham's. But this is almost more painful. This is a young man, a person, who he loved very, very dearly. You might say, well, I know what God wants to do through me, but I've got baggage now. I've got scars. I've got problems. I, I can't handle it. Well, guess what? God can deal with that. Look how kind God is to Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael here. Does he approve what he did? Absolutely not. And we're going to see that the problems with Ishmael are not over yet. We're going to see those again. But God is ready to move forward. God is like, I don't want to spend here all day hashing out what was done wrong. Let's just deal with it and move on. And you know what, Abraham? I know you love your son. And I also know this was not Ishmael's fault. And I also know that in a way, Hagar was put in a position where she couldn't really say no. So I'm going to bless them. I'm going to bless them as much as Isaac, except they're not going to get the covenant. God does not approve what he did, but he's ready to move forward. It's so similar to Luke chapter 15 and the story of the prodigal son, huh? The prodigal son goes off, and he's eating with the, the pods with the pigs, and he has a moment where he hits rock bottom, and he realizes, I've got to go back to my father. I'd rather be a servant in my dad's house than live like this. So he prepares this little speech, and I'll say, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. Please welcome me as a servant into your house. And you can picture him, like, practicing this speech as he's walking home, and he gets home, and his father sees him. What does his father do? He runs out to meet him throws his arms around him, and you read the story, his son kind of starts the speech. Father, I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't even get halfway through it. He says, bring the best robe, bring the ring, put it on his finger, kill the fatted calf. We've been waiting for you. My son was dead, and now he's alive. That's how the Lord handles people who come back after we've sinned and after we've messed up. Lord, I lost everything you had given me. All the potential is gone. All the money, all the inheritance is gone. The Lord's like, but you're home. Who cares about the money? God is willing and ready to receive us when we come to him. Scars and all. And you know what's so cool? God is willing to adjust the plan in order to be kind and merciful to us. God is adjusting the plan for Abraham's sake. Ishmael's here now. Kind of like before, he adjusted the plan because Lot was there. He didn't throw it out, but he said, okay, no going back from this. Let's move forward. 
sometimes we have to carry the pain of what we've done. There's just no way around that. We've got to carry the consequences of what we've done. And sometimes that will preclude God's original plan. But you know what? God makes everything glorious. Even the world we're living in right now. This is the cursed, sinful, broken version of the world. But it's beautiful. It's glorious. Life is good. Life is a good thing, even in a sinful world. The Lord is able to take a less than ideal situation and make the best out of it. God's like, maybe the capacity for what I wanted to do is lowered, but guess what? We're going to fill this thing all the way up. You're still going to get the fullness of what I can offer you. There are folks that have some serious problems, maybe even injuries or medical problems that they've accumulated in the pursuit of sin. There may be folks in prison who have really messed up the trajectory of their life. And that's not what God intended for them. There are folks that are in marriages they shouldn't be in. But you know what? God goes, this is where you are. Let's go forward. I'm going to make this the best it could possibly be. We're going to fill it up to the fullness. Isaiah 61.3 says, He will grant to those who mourn a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness for mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. There are some things you've done in your life where you have broken your life. What was possible and for, for you is not possible anymore because you broke it. So don't think, though, well, now I can't come to God. I'm damaged. I'm broken. That's how God sees it. Sort of like a financial advisor, if I can use a weird metaphor. You show up to them and you show, you show them a financial picture it does them no good to say, why'd you do this? Why did you do that? You can't fix this. This isn't going to work. If you had done that, it would have been better. Their job is to pick it up and say, okay, let's keep going. Let's move forward from where we are now. That's how God does it. God can redeem your life for his glory. Ongoing consequences don't break his mercy. And then God departed from Abraham. He's reaffirmed the promise. He's restored Abraham's faithfulness. He resurrected what was dead, and he's redeemed what was broken. That's what our God does. This was a revival that Abraham wasn't even looking for. And God stepped in and put him back on the right track. And let's read verse 23 to the end now. And then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Abraham did not wait even one day to get to work. He did what he was told. Now, Abraham was in the hands of the Lord. But he also had a responsibility from the Lord. And he took that seriously. And as I said, this would not have been so strange in this culture. Not such a strange thing to do, but it does speak of the fact that these people trusted Abraham, that they went with it. Abraham had been talking about his call from God his whole life. He probably had even emphasized that the promise had been fulfilled. Look, here's Ishmael. But now he comes back and says, God spoke to me. And we're not there yet, but God is going to get us there. Now it's not just talk. Now it's life. Now it's truth. He had sinned. He had some baggage now, but God wasn't done with him yet. 
The promise still was going to be fulfilled. That is the grace and mercy of a good father. Romans 11.29 says that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They're without repentance. God will not revoke the gifts and the calling that he's placed on your life. God's not done with you. Even if you've been sinful and you've racked up mounds of debt and trouble in your life because of sin, the Lord wants to buy you back, like Gomer and Hosea, where she left her husband and had a bunch of illegitimate kids and wasted all her money living like a prostitute until she was up for sale in the slave market. And the prophet Hosea went and the Lord said, go buy your wife back. Same thing you and I, with all of our mess and all of our trouble, we're in the slave market of sin, right there belonging to our own corruption and to the devil and to all of that mess. And the Lord comes in and says, no, I want him. I'll pay the price of my blood. I want her. I'll die on the cross for her. I'll pay the penalty. That's what Jesus did. Greater than what he did for Abraham. Joel 2.25 says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Even if your struggles are self-inflicted, and I've said this before, a lot of times we think, if it happened to me, God will help me. But if I did it, I've got to get through it. That is a lie from hell, you guys. Your God loves you. Your God will help you in your self-inflicted struggles. Why do you think God is going to be less helpful than we are? If you had a friend that you've known forever who called you up and said, dude, I messed up bad. I'm in serious trouble. Are you going to hang up the phone on him? No, you're going to say, look, man, let me go help you. You'll probably have a moment where you're like, how could you do something like that? But then you'll go, forget it. We're going forward. Let me help you out. What do you need? Is God less merciful than you? Well, no, he's more righteous than me. Yeah, you're right. Which the fact that he helps any of us at all should tell you that he's more merciful than you are. God has determined to save and to bless you. He'll be faithful. He'll redeem what's dead and broken. And you've got to be obedient to what the Lord has told you to do. You notice we went through those four things. Three quarters of that was about God and his work. That's the first thing to learn today. That God is the one who's working in you. God is the one making it happen. Now, that one quarter still matters. You've still got work to do. You still have a responsibility. You've got to circumcise your heart. You've got to go home and find out where you're still walking in the flesh. You've got a better covenant that has even less requirement upon you than Abraham's did. But you've still got to get up and do it. But we need to remember that the preponderance of this is the Lord's work. It's God. God is the one who heals people. God is the one that revives individuals and revives family and revives churches and cities and nations. We sang earlier tonight, if I'm not dead, then you're not done, right? That's scriptural. That's not a Bible verse, but that is absolutely biblical. If you're still alive, God's still working on you. There are folks that want to use that phrase to excuse all kinds of nonsense, but I don't think there's anybody here doing that. If you are, stop it. God is still working on us. I'm so glad. I look back at my life, which hasn't even been that long yet, but I can look back at a couple years and be like, I'm so glad that I'm not like that anymore. I'm so glad. I, you think what you were like in high school, and you're like, oh, thank Jesus that he brought me out of that. Guess what? You're looking at where your life is right now. And in a few years, you're going to look back at where you are now and you're going to say, I'm so glad that God brought me through that. You're going to think of things that you struggled with for years and years and you're going to say, God brought me through it. God was working all the while. He was moving. He was working on me, operating on me. You ever notice that when builders are building something, 
they're over there for weeks and months, and it looks like nothing's happening. They're digging the foundations. They're measuring it out. They're making sure everything is good and ready. And then when it comes time to actually erect the building, pow, it looks like it happens overnight. I think revivals are a lot like that, even personal revivals, where God's got to get you ready. He's got to deal with that stuff. And then in one moment, pow. I call upon you tonight to repent and believe on the Lord. I think I have a problem with emphasizing repentance too much and not enough on believing on the Lord who's actually going to do the work. Put yourself in the hands of God. Trust that the Lord is ready to redeem and ready to restore you. And even if you've got some baggage in your life, you've got some scars, you've got some pain, you've got some stuff you're going to carry with you, you've got those old wounds from the war, you know, that you're still going to carry with you, the Lord is ready to restore and redeem and give you the fullness of what he has to offer for your life.